is Co-Discovery. Hello and welcome to this episode of Co-Discovery with me, Abigail Acton. Violence reaches into our lives insidiously. At a personal level, it can be happening next door in the form of domestic violence. Further afield, as the impact of climate change demands strategic planning, violence prevents communities from putting into place the means to protect themselves. How does the memory of violence shape how our societies think of themselves? And how good are we at looking at our histories in the eye and rethinking our pasts? The 24th of March is the United Nations International Day for the right to the truth concerning gross human rights violations and for the dignity of victims. Our three guests, whose projects have been supported by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme, are here to talk about violence, its triggers and perspectives. A very warm welcome to Katharina Volt, member of the think tank Respect Research Group at the University of Hamburg. Katharina is interested in the effect of respect in the workplace, and she's been looking into how to enable first responders to better manage domestic abuse cases. Welcome, Katharina. Hello, everybody. Halvard Buhag is research professor at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo and professor of political science at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. He has led research projects on the security dimensions of climate change and geographic aspects of armed conflict. Halvard was the lead author of a chapter for the recently published Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change's sixth assessment report. Welcome, Halvard. Good morning. Senior lecturer in political theory at the University of Edinburgh and the co-director of the Centre for Ethics and Critical Thought, Mihaela Mihai's research focuses on political memory, art and politics, theories of oppression and political emotions. Welcome, Mihaela. Thank you for having me. Katharina, let's turn to you. Your project in Pradova looked at how policies and training shape frontline workers' responses to domestic violence. Can you tell us more about the inherent weaknesses in how societies deal with domestic violence? So when we look at the numbers, for example, from the Fundamental Rights Agency 2014, we have 24% of the interview women who say that they had been shoved or pushed by their current partner. And the majority of these women, they uh, did not experience this once, but uh, more often. So we have a real problem here. And although this costs a lot of money to uh, societies, we are not aware how large the epidemic is. So we see um, this in many ways. For example, we have a lack of shelter places. We have a lack of perpetrator work. And at the same time, domestic violence is very hard to spot. So it often takes uh, quite a long time until um, victims unveil what is happening to them, until they understand what is happening to them. And if we do not interrupt domestic violence um, early enough, this will have so um, bad effects on the victims, on their children, and we cannot leave this as it is right now. No, indeed, and that's what inspired you to, to take up the Impradova project. So how did your project go about identifying what changes are needed practically? So we uh, looked at uh, three frontline responder groups, um, police, medical, um, staff and uh, social workers. And what we see there is, um, for example, that medical staff like dentists, gynecologists and all others to a very high probability see patients of um, domestic violence each day. They are not prepared to spot domestic violence. They are not trained to be the first ones to break the silence, but they are the major go-to address for victims. At the same time, uh, at the police, we find that um, there are some specialists, but the majority are not trained in death in the, uh, on the topic of domestic violence. And that uh, leads to situations that um, 
police officers um, on the beat, um, if they are not informed enough and trained enough on this topic, they do not meet victims' needs as they could. So, for example, they do not forward victims um, to support services. And we have the social workers um, who are working at victim support. They are very well trained, but they cannot do the job alone. Uh, for example, their voices are not heard in front of the court. We also have a lack of cooperation between these frontline responder groups. And especially this cooperation, victims needs best. So, and comprehensively. And that is where our research started. So what did you actually do in your research? You, you established these weak points in these areas that needed improving. And then what did your project actually do? We looked at, um, at data and statistics. We looked at policies. We looked at risk assessment. We looked at case documentations. And we looked at training in all these sectors. And uh, we did this in eight European countries. When you brought it all together, what did you find was necessary? So we found the most necessary thing was training. And so we established a training website. You can find it um, with free access um, under https colon slash slash training.improdova.eu, where we have specifically um, training material designed for police, um, medical profession and social sector. And there we have also um, a tool on domestic violence risk assessment um, where you can learn about vulnerability factors, um, risk assessment process, and so on. We also have a policy maturity checklist for persons who went to set up um, a local domestic violence policy and want to check if their checklist is right. So because we also found that there's a lack of policies. Yeah. Right. Could you give me an example of where you found that there was something that wasn't working very well on the ground and you worked with a, maybe a first responder and maybe the police or something? Could you give me an example of where you managed to perhaps suggest a change in their approach? So what are they doing differently after your project? Um, so, for example, in France, um, we put a lot of energy um, on uh, collaborating with the French ministries and as a result, they learned from the project and from the management techniques um, of domestic violence in the other um, partner countries that they really needed um, a risk assessment tool on the ground. And um, so in 2020, um, they made a change in their law um, due to our contribution that they um, now at every um, domestic violence encounter, um, the police together with um, the domestic violence victim is doing the risk assessment. And as a result, um, we now see that in France, there's a significant increase of persons who want to press charges against their perpetrators in the domestic violence field. Excellent. As a direct consequence of your work. Yeah. That must be very fulfilling. Excellent. And the professionals that you, you interviewed and worked with and, and so on, were they welcoming of your advice and your suggestions? Did you meet with resistance or were they keen, in fact, to improve their services? Um, uh, usually they were very keen to, uh, to have this improved. Of course, we have some uh, partners where, uh, or partner countries where there was a huge uh, lack of knowledge and who benefited a lot. And we had other um, countries who were um, very elaborate and um, rather gave us the input, but who also um, saw by our research um, that they had some kind of validation of what they were actually already doing. Right. That's excellent. Thank you very much, Katharina. Does anyone have any questions for Katharina or any comments at all that they would like to, to say or, or make? Yeah, Michaela. Thank you so much for sharing your very exciting findings. Um, 
I mean, I'm a social scientist, so perhaps my question is a bit unfair, but I was wondering uh, whether there was room in your project to consider what could be done earlier, not at the point where the violence has already happened and the prosecution and you are enabling prosecutions. Um, is there space for thinking uh, temporarily a little bit earlier, preventively as opposed to punitively? Um, so I think a point where we have to be at a very early stage is um, when you are at the, at the medical profession. Um, where people come to you with psychosomatic problems. And we see at, um, in some countries um, or often rather in some organizations where it is obligatory to ask how it is going at home. For example, midwives at some places. And this is um, a very critical point because the tensions often do not arise out of the blue, but it's building up and building up. And to start as early as you can with the detection and then also with the prevention, and that is very um, important. So there is also um, a lot of um, numbers, for example, pregnant women, where due to the pregnancy, the violence does not stop, but or we just we do not only speak of violence, but also of abuse, so all the other psychological forms of violence. And um, in, in pregnancy, this is a very critical point um, that violence can increase, very dangerous for mama and baby. But we also see it, um, we know it from, the, um, from research that the point of um, splitting up a relationship is very critical. And so for, especially for this high, high impact domestic violence, so homicides and very strong uh, violence, so that we know this before, I, I think your point is very, very good. To be able to anticipate a little bit when, when yeah. things might get dangerous. Um, Halvard, sorry, you had a question as well. Would you like to pose it? Yeah, I mean, I, I really found this uh, very hands-on project extremely fascinating. Um, I just wanted to ask you briefly about something that you touched upon a little bit. Uh, and, and that is, uh, did, did you experience any kind of friction or some kind of disagreements in your understanding of what is the major problem here and what could be possible solutions between partner uh, practitioner communities, uh, perhaps especially practitioner communities that were not necessarily partners in this project on the one hand, and then academic research on the other. Um, a main point of friction is uh, already the, the understanding of what the main cause of domestic violence is. So we have here the two big fields of family violence and others who say it's uh, the gender inequality. So these, uh, these two fields, um, and of course, we also had a lot of discussion within our project on, on these topics. Within the, the field, we try to foster interagency cooperation. And here we need respect and meeting each other on eye level and to say, okay, I have my definition, you have your definition, but I do not have to change my way of thinking, but I need to learn how you, the other one, thinks so that we can interact good and in, in the end for the benefit and the satisfaction of the victim. And that must be the, if this is the priority that we benefit victims, then we can learn to step back from our different views. Yes, it motivates people to work together more smoothly because they yeah. can see that the end goal is so important. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, it, it must be difficult bringing together so many different organizations and cultures maybe or, or approaches that perhaps are different. It's an interesting question, Halvard. I was wondering about the friction thing as well. Thank you very much, Catherine. I'm going to turn to Halvard now and talk about his project. The Klimsec project took a look at the security implications of climate change, which were at the time the project kicked off still a little 
obscure. Hull, that climate change must have a destabilizing impact on societies. What were the gaps in our knowledge that Klimsek wanted to fill? And, and did those gaps lead to mistaken assumptions before about how climate shapes the risk of conflict? Yeah, so when the Klimsek project started uh, back in 2015, we still knew very little actually about how climatic changes could affect conflict risk. And so, for example, the uh, UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, the IPCC, had uh, published its fifth assessment report only months before. And that report concluded that research on climate and conflict was too patchy and with too many diverging findings to support a conclusion about a general relationship between climate and conflict. In some contrast, policy debates on climate and security at the time often were founded on strong assumptions about how climate, climatic changes directly threaten peace and security. So both the official justification for the Nobel Peace Prize award to the IPCC and Al Gore in 2007, and also subsequent uh, years of debates in the UN Security Council on climate security often make explicit connections between climate and violent conflict, but without rigorous scientific evidence to back up these claims. And so when this project started, there was a clear need for more systematic research on this issue. Okay, and that's obviously what, what inspired you to try and plug that gap. But was it leading to assumptions that were false? Did you, did you find that, that because there was a lack of really in-depth research, people were assuming things? Yeah, I think, uh, and especially in policy circles, both in terms of uh, national security assessments, but also in in in, in intergovernmental panels like uh, the UN Security Council, you very much heard very strong statements, very bold statements, that at the time was not even studied, or if to the extent that it was already studied, uh, research at the time did not provide strong evidence to support those claims. And what were the presumptions that they were making? What, that climate change was affecting resources and therefore, or what were they coming up with? Yeah, very often uh, you have this uh, narrative that climate change leads to an increase in competition of a scarce resources, such as uh, water, but also uh, fertile land. Okay, so... I must admit, I mean, that does kind of feel logical. I mean, one would imagine that that would cause stresses and fractures. But so what did your project do and what did you find? Yeah, so what we wanted to do was to provide a bit more nuance and, and more evidence, obviously, about uh, whether, how and uh, through which uh, uh, pathways climatic conditions could uh, affect peace and security. So first, we wanted to move beyond simple statistical analysis of direct associations between climatic conditions and conflict, and rather focus more on enabling conditions, on, on vulnerability factors that could make societies more vulnerable to climate change and therefore perhaps also more susceptible uh, to, to experience conflict as a result of climate change impacts. And so that meant that we were studying the role of discriminatory political systems, uh, prevalence of agricultural livelihoods, um, poverty and inequality more generally. Can we, can we be a bit more precise when we talk about discriminatory systems, for example? I mean, could you make that a bit more concrete and give me an example? Not necessarily an example in a certain country, but, you know, set it out as what you actually mean by that. So, what, certain people not allowed access to land or? Yeah, so what we studied in particular were what we call ethno-political exclusion. So, that means ethnic minority groups that are prevented from having influence over national politics, even influence over local politics and their own future. So really discrimina discrimination of uh, minority groups uh, that make these groups more vulnerable. Okay, great. Um, and so what did you actually find? I mean, if it isn't the case that 
scarcity of resources provokes competition that can turn out to be violent in the end. What, what actually was the, uh, the impact of climate change on security? Yeah, so this project, but also research more generally, uh, uh, have converged in the sense that we don't find very strong general links between climatic conditions and increased conflict risk. But under some of these vulnerability conditions, we do see a more consistent climate effect, meaning that among the most vulnerable social groups, uh, conflict risk does increase uh, during adverse environmental conditions. Uh, there are various pathways or various explanations for why this could be the case. Um, local competition over scarce resources could be one thing. For example, we do see a tendency uh, towards increasing conflict between different uh, uh, land user groups in, in parts of Africa during droughts. So this is because farmers and herders basically battle for the same land, but for different purposes. So we do see some evidence of that, but that is under very specific vulnerability conditions and not a very general pattern that can be uh, generalized uh, to the globe as such. As it had been in the past, yeah. yeah. So if climate change wasn't provoking on a wider level, on a more general level, a conflict between different groups wanting to manage territory and access to resources, what actually was the impact of climate change? Was it uh, more to do with resilience maybe? Yeah, so I mean, uh, uh, don't get me wrong here, climate change and, and climatic extremes can have very devastating impacts on, on, on uh, human security in terms of uh, livelihood loss, in terms of income loss, in terms of uh, compromised food security, for example. Uh, and all of those uh, impacts can be devastating for the affected communities. But we do not necessarily see very strong increase in conflict risk because of that. People might try to stay out their misery. They might relocate, uh, but very rarely do they decide to fight because of this. Right. Okay. Um, you mentioned that you wanted to make sure that the project findings could be available to people beyond just academia, such as national governments and, and the UN. Did you manage to do that with your project results? How had they fed in wider? After all, you are one of the lead writers in the latest chapter. So tell us more about this. Yeah. So I guess that is the, the, the main question, right? Um, and yeah, I do think that the project has made a bit of a difference, in particular through the work of the IPCC. Um, so the IPCC just released the second part of the sixth assessment report on impacts of climate change on nature and society. And if you compare the, the conclusions from that report to the previous fifth assessment report, which was then published shortly before this project started, you will see that the new report uh, makes clearer conclusions about the conditions under which climatic extremes could lead to increased conflict risk. But at the same time, and this is quite important, the project also highlights how armed conflict can be a driver of vulnerability and leading to uh, worse outcomes of climate change also outside of, of, of conflict. And so the conclusion both of the CLIMSEC project and of this new IPCC report is that while climate change may increase conflict risk, Armed conflict also very much increases vulnerability to climate change. And so the result could be such a vicious cycle of fragility, political instability, and adverse impacts from climate change. And what are the mechanisms whereby armed conflict can actually uh, provoke a problem regarding climate change? Is it to do with resilience building or 
the ability of communities to pull together? How does that play out? Yeah, th that could be part of the story. Certainly in terms of uh, climate change making society more vulnerable, uh, you, you see, a uh, again, loss of finance, loss of income, uh, destruction of physical infrastructure, and importantly, a forced displacement that make people more vulnerable to, to subsequent climate extremes. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. Do we have any, does anyone have any questions for Harvard? Yeah, Mela. Thank you again for such a fascinating account of your of your findings. Um, if you were to rerun your project in 2050 or in uh, 2100, what do you think your findings were? Do you think they would change? What do you anticipate? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And uh, in fact, uh, one aspect of the project that we ended on was to try to look more into the long-term future. So what, do, what can we tell about long-term implications of this research? And so our current findings, and this is still work in progress, suggests that other conditions that then climate change will continue to be influential in shaping future conflict risk. But when we get towards 2050, 2080, 2100, you know, if, if the worst comes true and we really fail in mitigating climate change, I certainly expect climate to have a much stronger impact also on, on peace and security, negative impact, than we see today. Uh, but on the other hand, if we succeed in mitigating climate change, hopefully uh, we will continue to see uh, a relatively modest climate effect on, on conflict also 50 years from now. Harvard, I've got a question for you, actually. Um, when it comes to the idea of disruption in societies, undermining a society's ability to strategically plan to mitigate the impact of climate change because they are so focused on dealing with the conflict that's in front of them, in order to, I know this isn't exactly your field, but maybe you have some ideas on this, in order to bring an end to that conflict and make the society itself more cohesive. Did you come across any ideas or did you have any ideas at all on, on how societies can, can turn their focus away from the conflict to, to the actual more pressing need of, of mitigating forthcoming climate change? How, how can societies become more cohesive to address that challenge? Any ideas on that one? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, you know, armed conflict, violent conflict is political failure. And I think that definition and that understanding also points to uh, some entry points for solution. You need to fix governance. You need to uh, fix a relationship between communities, building trust, building transparent and accountable institutions. Uh, saying that is easy. Doing it is, of course, extremely challenging. Yes, thank you. Yeah, indeed. And actually, Mihaela, I'm going to turn to you because in a way, perhaps the Grey Zone project that you were involved with could can further this uh, this rapprochement, this, this connection between previously disrupted communities. So the Grey Zone project you were involved with was considering the ways in which communities remember their violent pasts, who's excluded from history's cast of characters, and what the political implications are in the present of that kind of selective memory. So it's very interesting, but it sounds a little abstract. Could you could you tell us how did you actually set about analyzing that? So um, I was interested in how societies remember, or rather misremember, uh, those who are not heroes, who are not victims, and who are not perpetrators uh, of violent histories, those who are usually called in everyday parlance ordinary people. And I wanted to unpack a little bit this idea of ordinary people and focus on how uh, various subgroups uh, within the ordinary people navigated uh, 
um, what we could call the choppy waters of authoritarian violent regimes. Uh, and here I included in my study both left-wing and right-wing uh, authoritarian regimes. And I wanted to answer a question, a specific question. Why do some people end up collaborating with such violent regimes and why do others end up resisting them? And this is a question that has troubled historians uh, of the 20th century particularly. Uh, I wanted to understand uh, what social factors influenced where people ended up in this vast space that opens up between perpetrators on the one hand and the heroic resistors uh, that usually enter society's uh, repositories of valor and courage uh, on the other. So could uh, I just ask you, um, which, which case studies were you particularly interested? Which situations did you look at? And how did you conduct your research? Yes, yeah, so I, I looked at four different case studies. I looked at uh, Vichy France, so uh, France under their German occupation, which combined authoritarianism with a military occupation. I look at apartheid South Africa, which combined authoritarianism and uh, colonial and white supremacist uh, elements. Uh, communist Romania uh, and the most re uh, recent Argentine military junta, military uh, authoritarian regime. And the uh, project was eminently interdisciplinary. Uh, together with my team members, we used tools from a variety of discipline, uh, philosophy, sociology, social theory, history, but also aesthetics and the sociology of art. And uh, we first uh, wanted to delineate the official story. How do these societies retell their past? How do these societies narrate their past? And what is included and what is excluded uh, from these narratives? Uh, and uh, the question then becomes, what are the costs of, of certain specific types of, of exclusions? And so um, what we found out is that these societies have a very uh, reductive understanding of uh, political agency in the past. What do I mean by that? They tend to erase this great space of the in-between, of the ordinary people who could neither fit the hero uh, role or the perpetrator role, but they also erase uh, messy, uh, punctual, uh, morally ambivalent forms of resistance that do not fit the heroic model, the heroic life. What type of resistance would you mean when you say messy or doesn't, doesn't fit the, the model? Well, some, uh, some, uh, there are commonalities across the four uh, case studies, and one of the the most evident uh, pattern is that women's resistance is very much erased, uh, and in general. Um, organized resistance uh, relegated women to um, subordinate roles. And when they did engage in forms of resistance that could be coded as masculine, such as armed resistance, they did not get post-violence recognition in the way in which the conflict or the dictatorship was remembered. And so messy resistances as, such as um, uh, those by people who did not engage in big armed struggles, but were uh, sheltering victims or were uh, enabling armed resistance or um, where publishing illegal uh, illegal documents very often gets subordinated or completely erased uh, from from um, the annals of, of courage. Um, I wanted to make a quick point about the case selection because I don't want to give this impression that you know um, this problem of uh, how societies misremember difficult violent past is a problem that happens elsewhere, right? It has it's not here in affluent democratic societies. Uh, because again and again in various member states of the European Union and also in the UK, we've had 
many public debates uh, about the colonial, racist, intolerant histories that inform our current democratic politics and their exclusions, right? So the past imprint on present institutions, relationships, norms, understandings of the nation must be reckoned with everywhere, including in societies with long and, and robust uh, democratic uh, traditions. So everybody has a skeleton in the past, as it were. Yeah, so and it's a question of opening the cupboard and looking at the skeleton in the face, as it were. And of course, that's something that it's difficult for human nature to do. People don't like to rethink what they've built up into a structure of their own identity, who they believe really that they are. It's very challenging on all sorts of levels. I mean, interpersonal right the way through to international. Uh -huh. um, so you considered, as you said, it was interdisciplinary. In other words, you used various methods and, and various ways of, of analyzing data and information and so on. What did you find with regards to how messages that were not the traditional messages were transmitted? What was the role, for example, of the arts in getting something a little bit more perhaps realistic and, and a little bit more accurate over to, to people? Yes, so that's a very important question. So, um, as I said, we first mapped up the, the official story and then we looked for sources, for alternative sources of memory making. Where is Where are the alternative stories being told? Where are the counter stories being told? And of course, we found that historians and sociologists had actually produced a lot of works that challenged these reductive and self-serving stories about the past. But of course, uh, academic books don't make for great bestsellers. So the impact of these works was very rarely uh, very important and, and actually led to processes of social transformation. Whereas if we looked at art and in particular at films and novels, we saw that they can actually seduce publics because of their uh, um, aesthetic value to embrace a more honest, a more accurate image of, of their past. And so we uh, built on work in film and literary studies to analyze a series of artworks that undid or that reversed this double erasure I was mentioning uh, at the beginning. And we looked at novels and films that showed how gender, class, ideology, religion, age, geographical location, that is to say, individuals' complex position within a society determined how they acted in relation to state violence, either as accomplices or as resistors. Um, and we also found in these works that we analyzed what I earlier called impure resistors, who are usually excluded from uh, countries' repositories of, of, of uh, valor, but also from monuments, from history books, from all the places where commemoration happens. So some of the forms that, of art, as you mentioned, novels and films, were offering a, a more of a, a spotlight on elements of resistance that had actually been almost neglected or perhaps even swept under the carpet because it didn't match a notion of national identity. Absolutely. And even uh, more than that, they also shed light on the underside of heroism, of the fact that, you know, what we call heroes, what these societies consecrated as heroes were fabrications, right? To a great large extent, they were fabrications. And these biographies, uh, these saintly biographies, uh, were usually purged of any unsavory elements. So the hero's own abuses and violence and compromises and moral ambivalence was, as you said, swept under the carpet. And these artworks shed light on it. Right, because this human nature requires something a little bit more simplistic and perhaps not actually particularly accurate or real. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you very much. Does anyone have any questions for Mikhaila? Because this is a fascinating subject area, I think. Yeah, Harvard. Yeah, I agree. This is uh, super fascinating. So um, within empirical research on, on armed conflict, uh, the strongest predictor of 
a new conflict is a recent history or a recent experience with conflict. And so that suggests that the way history is rewritten perhaps may contribute to maintaining a very high conflict risk, maintaining animosity perhaps, or even increasing nationalism and awareness of own identity. And therefore, I think it's it's super fascinating when you also discuss the, the role of art and do you see that the art, in a sense, could contribute to building lasting peace precisely by tearing down some of these flawed stories of heroes and providing a better insight of, of, of the experiences from the other side, to put it that way? Thank you. This is such an important question. Uh, I, I want to begin by specifying that I don't have trust in the power of art per se uh, to do anything for the good or for the bad. Uh, there are artworks that have been used politically to uh, fuel conflict and to fuel violence, right? That have, as you said, uh, you know, um, institutionalized ideas of the nation, of the people that are intolerant, violent, exclusionary. For some people, sometimes certain types of artworks will do the kind of peace building work that you're referring to. Um, but there is no such thing as a progressive force of art uh, per se or to court. Yeah, it's always qualified. We have to uh, apply the lens of the critical theorist and figure out what kind of narratives told in what type of aesthetic style can potentially trouble these reductive narratives and pave the way for a more peaceful future. And also, I would imagine sometimes there's a necessity for a certain passage of time before these challenging films or challenging books or paintings or whatever actually become accepted by a society, maybe. Yes, and, and also it takes time for them to be produced. Um, and uh, one of the selection criteria for, for these four case studies was that enough time had passed for a rich artistic production to, to flourish uh, and to uh, begin to tell uh, um, counter stories without facing massive political risks. So that is another uh, important aspect. Many of the artists uh, were facing personal and professional risks in telling these, uh, these counter stories that publics were not yet ready to receive. And many of the films and books we analyzed in the project caused great scandals and great uh, public indignation when, when they came out. When they first came out. Yes. I think this has been really fascinating. I think that there is one common element that runs through this, which is the ability to recognize responsibility in the past as being a, a way to build some more abiding calm or peace in the present. So thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been a very great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much for having us. Are you interested in what other EU-funded projects are doing to look at the mechanisms behind violence and ways forward through that? The CORDIS website will give you an insight into the results of projects funded by the Horizon 2020 programme that are working in this area. The website has articles and interviews that explore the results of research being conducted in a very broad range of domains, from entropy to elephants. There's something there for you. Maybe you're involved in a project or would like to apply for funding. Take a look at what others are doing in your domain. So, come and check out the research that's revealing what makes our world tick. We're always happy to hear from you. Drop us a line, editorial at cordis.europa.eu. Until next time. <laughs>